hello and welcome. This is Create and Destroy. I am Jordan Gian and this is my show where I get to speak to creatives, entrepreneurs, thinkers and innovators from all around the world that I look up to and I admire. Um, these people have a shared interest in the in the arts and in, in creativity, but not always in the traditional landscapes that you'd think. So, I mean, they're not all graffiti artists or covered in paint and pixels. Some of these people are leading companies in new and exciting ways. Um, and some of them are athletes training in, in crazy ways to, to achieve things that we can all learn from. Now, the reason why I started this show was so I can share with you some of the conversations that I'm having daily. A lot of these thoughts turn into blog posts. Um, and I realized just the other day that it's easier for me to talk into a microphone than it is to tap away at the keyboard for hours, finessing structures of sentences, especially when I, I don't particularly enjoy writing. But I can talk and I think it's okay to, to listen. Now, this show is obviously one-sided. You get to listen, but it's definitely open to feedbacking and critiquing. I'm all for that. So if there's any ideas along the way or people you think that I should talk to, definitely reach out to me. Instagram's the easiest. It's at just Jordan Gian. So J-O-R-D-A-N-G-I-A-N. Um, I'll be listening and getting back to you all about any ideas you have. I'd love to hear from you. Now, this podcast is brought to you by Rochambeau Studios. Now, full disclosure, I am one of the co-founders and directors of Rochambeau, so I'm a little bit biased when I say that we're one of the most forward-thinking companies in the in the world. Um, it, that's totally tongue-in-cheek. Tongue in There's amazing companies around the world, but we're lucky enough to work with some of these companies in uncovering their potential and, and helping them move into the future. Uh, sometimes that's around building innovation portfolios and and taking those ideas that don't normally fit directly into their BAU or their kind of business as usual and kind of developing with them new ways of innovating and moving into the future. Um, that falls into two camps. Sometimes we help them with these projects, like I've mentioned, um, but every single time it, it comes with developing high-performance humans. And so by understanding your brain and the way that we think and interact with each other, we can definitely move forward and, and start really changing the world we live in. Rochambeau is based out of Melbourne, Australia, um, but, we, but we work globally. We're a nice, nimble team. We get to fly and travel and we like to explore. So reach out to us if, if you want to hang out. Cool. So that kind of brings us to the first episode. I thought it was fitting that before we start meeting up and, and meeting amazing people from all walks of life, it's important to understand me, which is very egotistical of myself. But before I get a whole bunch of questions of who are you, who's this guy, I thought um, it would be nice to, to kind of paint some of the picture now with some context of where I've come from, what I've been through and where I want to go. So without any further ado, here's going to be my life in dot points. Um, definitely dot points. I don't want to bore you to death, but here's some things that I've learned along the way. So I was born in Bunbury, Western Australia. That is two hours south of Perth towards the Margaret River wine region. 
It's a beautiful coastal town on the beach, very small, about 36,000 people in the postcode, but nearby there's a lot of other towns that are close and um, surrounded by hills and nature and clean air, which is the thing that sometimes I miss the most. Um, I grew up skating and surfing and kind of falling over and, you know, scratching your knees and, and kind of doing the normal coastal Australian upbringing thing. Um, I lived there until just recently. I've always traveled a lot, um, but now I live in Melbourne. But a lot of my story and a lot of my learnings come from the other side of, of the country. A quick four-hour flight plus about a three-hour kind of commute down with you include waiting for luggage and hire cars. So door to door takes me normally seven hours to, to get back and, and unwind on the beach and catch up with friends and family. Now, over there in Bunbury, I, I started very, very abruptly yet humbly, I think would be the, a fair way to put it. I uh, was living in Perth when I was 18. I moved to study design and philosophy at uh, Edith Cowan University and quickly found that uni was not for me. Um, it wasn't because the work was hard or particularly challenging. It was actually the opposite. I found myself not being challenged enough. Um, I also didn't really agree with, you know, doing 12 years of schooling to, to jump into a whole bunch more of schooling for something that is very, very subjective, and that is art and design. What I mean by that is that I could draw you a picture and you'll love it or you'll hate it and it doesn't matter if I've got a degree to say that I can draw a picture. Don't get me wrong, I definitely think that universities have a place in our society and I now work with uh, Victoria University in Melbourne and, and a number of others in, in, in designing creative thinking and entrepreneurial mindsets in their students. But for some, some degrees, design included, I think practicing is more important than, than learning the theory. Um, let me be straight. I definitely want my doctor to have their degree and know the theory. I definitely want my lawyers to know what you can and can't do and my engineers to make sure the building doesn't fall on our heads. But just to be clear, I think that action is the most important thing built on a solid foundation of theory. So I did six months at, at ECU and um, called it quits. Funny story, I actually didn't call it quits. I just stopped going. So I've actually just had to pay for it all for classes I actually didn't go to. So if you're listening and you're thinking about dropping out of uni, do it. Drop out if you want, but make sure you tell them because it's an expensive way to call in sick. When I left, I, I actually brought a ticket and I was moving one way to Japan. And this is 2011 when that horrible earthquake tsunami combo came through and wiped out all those towns up on the coast in the northeast of uh, Tokyo, of, of Japan rather. Um, and the town that I was lined up to go and teach English and kind of live and I really didn't have much plans except for exploring and maybe snowboarding and surfing when I can, they got wiped out and there was a nuclear reactor really close and there was radiation flowing everywhere and the safest thing I think I did was lose those tickets and and just took it as a scientist to move back to Bunbury and and figure my shit out. 
at that point, I, I it was over summer when this happened and Christmas was coming up. I was actually shopping for my family and from, you know, traveling, I was surfing a lot before this and any, any chance I had, I was on a plane kind of flying around because uni wasn't really keeping me there. Um, I, I couldn't really find any presents or gifts, which is really selfish, but well, not selfish. I guess I was buying presents, but I couldn't find what I was looking for in that town for my friends. And suddenly it occurred to me that if I was looking for some things, there was most likely other people looking for things too. Um, my tastes are definitely lie in, I guess, fashion and art and design and all those things that sometimes are more about form than function, but man, they're great to look at or great to wear and you, you feel good. And, and I really be- believe in, in design. So I sold everything I had. I somehow scratched together some money, not much. I think it was just shy of 50 grand, which, you know, now doesn't seem like much, but at the time was such a massive, massive stretch. Um, took me a little bit of time, about six months of big borrowing and stealing things. I was working every odd, odd job and every odd job and every odd job that I could to put this cash together. And I then thought, okay, cool. There's, there's a demand obviously, well, wasn't validated, but I validated it with myself and my friends. It's time to let's, let's create some supply. So I convinced the guy to rent me a shop. Um, I was very, very grateful and, st- and still are super grateful for that. I rented a shop at 41 Victoria street. It was a financial planners, uh, Mark Cranley, the, the Mark and Robin Cranley, rather the, the landlords. Well, I've, I've, I've no idea why they took a punt on me. Um, but they rented me the, the shop with the clause of basically do whatever the fuck you want to the building. But if you leave bail, we kick you out. You have to return it to how you found it. And so I took that and went, okay, cool, whatever, sweet. I'm not going anywhere. So I think day one, I brought a sledgehammer and I started smashing walls out. And these weren't stud walls. These were brick walls. So somehow I didn't collapse the whole building on me, but I opened what was a an old railway cottage into one long shop, which was four rooms that had now been connected by smashing out these walls. Um I then continued to open this shop in 2011 called The Darkroom Concept. Out back there was space for myself and and three friends to work from and continue to shoot photos, make video, create art, do whatever you wanted to do, which I guess was the start of co-working for me. That was essentially my office. In front of that was a photo studio, which I could photograph my products that I made and that I sold um, online. And then in front of that, in the rest of these, the rooms that had recently been opened up was the shop. And in the shop, there was fashion brands all the way from, uh, Vans and Ruka and Subi and Romance was born and, and that kind of great, you know, brands of 2011. Um, that was our retail space, some jewelry, some shoes, you know, the, the usual kind of thing. And then that hallway that connected all these rooms and you walked into from the street was a tiny little art gallery where I convinced some friends to hang their stuff in, put a price tag to it, just basically because I had space for it. That was as simple as that. And that's where I started learning. I had no business experience. My 
My parents had a store, so I kind of grew up around retail. So it wasn't completely foreign to me. Um, but that's where I started. I brought a computer, figured out how to sell things, how to connect it to your bank, and really, really quickly found out the importance of cash flow. Now, I must disclose that I got pretty damn lucky that first kind of run around the block because as this was happening, the mining boom in Western Australia was still very, very strong. Um, our economy there at the time was was doing really well. And I noticed that a lot of my friends from school who now got jobs up north in these massive, you know, I've never, never been myself, but in these massive kind of mining plants and I don't know what they do up there, they're digging the ground for some stuff. They're going up and they're working for four weeks and having one week off and they're coming back to this tiny town and there wasn't much to do. They would come back with a pocket full of cash and I was noticing they were all buying cars and motorbikes and jet skis and all the things you do when you're, you know, late teens, early early 20s. And um, I, I kind of figured that some of them would be into clothing too. So I kind of filled that void for them. So I was very lucky that I was young and my friends were, they had this disposable income and they were coming in buying their shoes and their jeans for me, which was, which was so, so epic. So that really kind of got me moving in, in the right direction. Now I slaved in that store from 2011 to 2000 and gee, what was it? Maybe 16 in that store. Now there was ups and downs, like there was, there was heap of challenges and heaps of stories that I'm sure I'll go into over this podcast as they arise. Um, but I pretty much figured out what not to do, which was basically spend all your money before paying your suppliers, um, you know, party too much, buy too many beers, you know, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, I was young and it was all fun and exciting and it was really just feeling a void um, of me not knowing what the fuck I was doing. So that was the store. Um, the store then grew. I realized that somehow this money was disappearing and that was primarily due to there not being enough margin in my product. Now, 50% margin is still nothing to laugh at. I think it's still really, really great. But when you add in your overheads and staff and tax and all those sorts of things in retail, you're not left with literally any money to replace the stock that you just sold. So very quickly, I created a vertical product called Darkroom Concept. The same thing. It was our own internal brand. I changed the spelling a little bit, which would turn into its own little spin-off. And I started creating t-shirts and, and printing them and just just kind of trying to fill the, the, literally the, the hole of money between, you know, the bills I had to pay and, and the margin that I needed to find. So all of a sudden I'm in manufacturing. So I learned all about design, production, manufacturing, distribution, and all those things. It was just me and one man band at this, at this time, um, with, you know, friends and family and my girlfriend, Madison helping along the way on the weekends. And it was literally the only time we could hang out, which was on Saturday and Sunday, she would come to the store with me. Um, because I couldn't take it off. So I literally just worked seven days for those five years and, 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 and loved it. I, I must say that it was fun. I'm not complaining. It was, it was amazing. And I learned a lot. Now, every dollar of profit that I made was reinvested into the business or other businesses. So from the darkroom concept that I quickly, not quickly over four years, I outgrew that store and rented this building that I'd had my eyes on for a damn, a long time. It was called the Lyric Theatre. There was a local family there, the Brown family that owned it. 
um, I kind of knew them loosely through family connections and it just being a small town. And this place used to be a furniture store, but before that it was the theater of the town and it had this massive mezzanine level that was put in after um, the theater and when it was turned into a furniture store. And I remember going in there as a kid and there was just mattresses. Now this place was, gee, from memory, I think it was about 550 square meters. It was a pretty solid space um, full of mattresses. I remember just going, man, I'd love to come and you know have my my big movie scene play out here where I just had to jump on the beds and, and all that sort of stuff, um, which I kind of got the grown-up version when I convinced them to rent me the store. Um, I took over this store, which was 550 squares. Um, I called that thing Maker & Co. And I moved my store, the Darkroom concept, into Maker & Co. alongside uh, six other studios or small entrepreneurs that I convinced to rent space off me. So Maker & Co. kind of had this creative co-working side to it, which had actually just grown organically from that tiny room out the back of the first door. Um, and then I also opened a shop in there called Whitewash, which was a surf hardware store, which was honestly just an excuse for me to get surfboards a little bit cheaper so I could go surf. It was, it was really, that was as simple as that. There was also a, a massive gap in the market and it was hard to find surfboards in that town and we're on the beach and it just didn't add up to me. I learned why it didn't add up literally later on. Uh, I put a shoe store in there with my mom called Zori, um, continued to make products and Madison and, and I, but mostly Madison started a little balloon company called OK Blush where we're doing those really big balloons with confetti in them, you know, the clear ones for weddings and birthdays and all that sort of stuff before, just a little bit before you could get them everywhere. So for a time there, man, I was, I was so busy. Oh, gee, there was gallery space there too. It kind of, it was essentially, if you thought about it as a little uh, shopping center, a tiny, tiny micro one, that's how I thought about it too, which was I had all these little shops, some of which I owned and ran, and I had other tenants. So all the issues in there, I, I learned a lot. So that one there was great, but all of a sudden I had that first store still sitting there. I still had my lease there. I actually signed a lease for 19 years from memory for that first place. It was like a three plus three plus three plus three, you know. Um, I, I definitely played the long game from the start with that. Um, and I ended up opening a bar there, which was called and still is there called Lost Bills. Lost Bills was Bunbury's first uh, small bar. There was a few of us that all opened at the same time, small bars. Um, but mine was the first without a kitchen. So mine was a true craft cocktail and craft beer bar, really tiny, only fit 75 people. Sometimes I must admit that felt like a lot more because there was a lot more than that in there. Um, and again, it was just to fill the void where I didn't have a place where I felt that I belonged in the community. I couldn't go to the local bar. I mean, I could, but it wasn't my type of people hanging out. It was very uh, blue collar, talking about burnouts and dirt bikes and things that I wasn't really interested in. Um, there was actually a massive violence issue in the town at the moment. And I primarily thought this was because there was too many subcultures in one building. And I felt if I could pull out all the outliers and all the creative weirdos out of those businesses and, and out of the existing pubs and put them into lost bills, one, it reduce the impact and, and the violence because primarily it was a conflict of subcultures that would evoke violence. Plus, 
I would give them an environment and a space to connect with with each other and and who knows what would happen. I'm a strong believer in um, luck being a result of serendipity and serendipity is literally a result of being in the right place at the right time. So I started thinking about how we could create serendipity in that community. Um, And I'm I'm super happy to say I, I can count like 10 or 12 businesses that I saw blossom kind of under my under my nose from serving in beers and kind of having chats to them in the streets and in the stores of people thinking around these ideas and I was just literally giving them space to think and create um, and maybe by osmosis a little bit of confidence to go, fuck it, man, just do it. Give it a crack. Like you got nothing to lose. Go go make it happen. Um, and all of a sudden it was 2016. Um and I was really, really kind of stressed. I was super, super busy. Um, but this was, this was by intention. There's a massive life event that happened to me in 2011, right at the start of the story that I kind of skipped over. But let me elaborate a little bit. It was Father's Day in 2011. I'm stressed out. I got that first store going. It's real crazy. It was, you know, Father's Day is on a Sunday. And I remember my mate, uh, and his little brother, Nico and Jake hit me up and it was, I'd, I'd been working in the morning. I was at the store and they're like, dude, let's go for a surf. We'll go down South. We've got you know, breakfast. I remember they had uh, breakfast with their dad. I'd saw my dad quickly, but I, I think we had dinner together that night planned. So I was like, yeah, I could totally squeeze in a little surf. Let's do it. So we loaded into the, into the car and, um, we headed down South and this is on, on Sunday. I'd, I'd worked the store. They picked me up from the shop. I remember it clear as day. And we drive down to a place called Bunkers Bay and there's a, there's a little break there called Boneyards, which um, is such a shitty name. Um, we go down to Boneyards. It's, it's not awesome, but it's clear blue. It's nice sunny day. Um, I remember getting my surfboard, waxing it up real quick and we all just kind of run in there. We knew we had a little window to surf and, and get back to town, which was an hour and a half away. You know, you got to factor in that pie and iced coffee stop, you know. Uh, we paddle out. I remember getting, I actually didn't have priority. Jake did. He was deeper on this wave that came through, but he was on a little boogie board and he was my mate's little brother. Um, and me just being such a smart ass, I dropped in on him. And so I dropped in on Jake and he had his GoPro and I was in front of him. And I remember this wave so clearly because I was so pumped on it. I flew down the line and tried to hit the lip and I'm not very good, but I'll have fun. Right. So I, I hit the lip and just did this little throwaway into the flats, this little attempt at an air, which was, was nowhere near from landing it. But I was so pumped. I thought, fuck, we're on here. This is going to be such a fun day. And so paddling out, you know, Jake and I got in first and then Nick, his brother paddled out with another friend who conveniently was on the beach too, Ricky Kershaw. He, they were paddling out together and there was only one guy surfing. Uh, His name is Kyle Borden and we cruised out and I remember seeing Kyle, Rick and Nick sitting there right on the lineup and Jake and I paddling back to to meet them and, and wait for the next wave to come through and we're probably, geez, maybe six, five, six meters away from them when all of a sudden I saw this splashing and Nick and, and Rick were real close to this dude, Kyle, who was on the boogie board, uh, bodyboard, I always say that, bodyboard. Um, and I actually thought that this this dude we didn't know was trying to fight Rick, like I just saw his arms flying around and splashing all sorts of shit. And Rick kind of backing off going, fuck man, like what's going on here? So I thought it was a fight. I thought something had blown up. And it wasn't until I realized that 
you know, Kyle's legs were in the mouth of a, of a shark. Now, I thought it was a great white, but I think the reports was it was a bronzy. Um, regardless, it was fucking huge. Like this thing was just thrashing him around. It was real heavy. Um, and I was right there and it was so crazy how things happened. As this happened, it was time, to- time totally s- slowed down. And because I was furthest on the shoulder, I had this really wide view of everything. So I could see all my mates I was there with and this other dude literally in the mouth of a shark, which was underwater and it was kind of thrashing him about, kind of like a toy with a uh, dog with a chew toy. Sorry to paint the picture a little bit too much, but I think it's really important to understand the severity of this. And at that same time, almost immediately I could see the the water turning red and my mates in the red and as that happened a wave came through and kind of stretched the red out on this face of a wave where rick nick and jake all got on the wave but i was just a little bit too much on the shoulder so i couldn't i i couldn't get onto it right so they they get zoomed in on this wave and i'm there and it's just me and i look over and the dude kyle had gone underwater and I could kind of follow this change of color in the clear blue, blue kind of real crystal clear day went under and, and I'm slowly going, fuck, okay, don't splash too much because you, you always, you always hear growing up surfing, like you don't want to attract, you know, you don't want to look like an injured seal or an injured any marine life because sharks will go, fuck, that's easy, easy, easy target, you know? And so... I, I started paddling slowly towards the shore. I was probably about 80 meters off the, off the shore. So a fairly decent paddle, but I remember the, probably the first 30 meters from the beach was really, really shallow. So it's, it's probably only like 50 meters off the shore. And as I'm paddling, I could just, I was looking over and I could see a bodyboard completely submerged and attached to Kyle. And attached to Kyle was a shark. And they went under me, super kind of slowly almost eerily eerily slow and i don't know if it's slow because my brain kind of went into hyper um observant mode because it was literally fight or flight kind of time or it was slow because it was slow you know but this is my memory and so i was paddling in slow going okay just get to get to shore but half of me was going fuck how do i help this dude how do i well, fuck, what do, what do I do? It's not a situation you can train for. It's nothing you can read about. It's not like you've heard, hey, man, if this ever happens to you, this is what you should do. It's it's literally the opposite. Like you don't want this to ever happen and you don't ever want to be a part of it. And I, I still don't want to be a part of it, but it's it's a big learning that I, I went through. So I'm paddling to the store and I'm going, fuck, 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 how do I help this dude? And I remember looking at my friend uh, Rick, Nick and, and Jake on the beach and they're all like in, in different levels of distress and not really knowing what to do. And Nick's got his hands on his head, like looking beyond me, I'm still in the water and I'm, I'm looking back and I can see thrashing and I can see shit going on and they're, they're looking at it and I'm looking back kind of between Kyle and, and the beach. Uh, I'm in the middle and I'm going, fuck dudes, what do I do? What do I do? Kind of, you know, when you look at someone and you're looking for guidance and you just, you know, I wasn't getting anything back. So I quickly got to the store, shore and I think because I didn't, I wasn't watching, I didn't understand everything that was happening. So I get to the beach and 
throw my surfboard on, on the sand. I'm like, dude, 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 fuck, get those other people out the water up, up the up the beach. Fuck, there's another there's another break called the farm. And I remember looking up there. It's Father's Day. I remember there's people fucking everywhere, and there's this, there's a dude getting eaten by a shark right here, and there's people up the street just up the beach, just just no idea, just swimming and you know playing cricket, kicking the footy, and a couple of people out surfing. I'm just going fuck, fuck, fuck. So I remember just going. Yo, yo, Nick, Jake, fuck, get them out. You got to call the cops. You could, you know, do something. And I remember grabbing Jake's flippers um, from his bodyboard or from him rather. And I was like, you get them out. I'm, fuck, I got to do something. So and these dudes, Nick and Jake are man giants. They're fucking huge, like six, six kind of guys. And I'm tiny. I'm, I'm, I think, you know, five, nine on a good day. And so I've put these massive fucking flippers on and kind of run into the, to the beach trying to go and man, like, let me, what can I do? And as I turn around, I realize there's two other guys. They already got out there. They were, they were ahead of me. They've, they've paddled out. And turns out that Kyle had two friends on the beach. Kyle was just getting one more wave in. He was just waiting for a good one. And his mates were already on the beach that I hadn't noticed when I was paddling out. So these two dudes, I'm, fuck, man, I, I think it's another thing that your brain does in these highly stressful situations. They, your brain chooses to block memories that it doesn't want. Um, and, and I'm so sorry, but I, I don't know the names of the two, two dudes, the two mates of Kyle's that, that jumped in and, and did everything that they possibly could to, to help. And, um, they're already out there. They're, they've got to Kyle. And so now I'm kind of waist deep, kind of shoulder deep, kind of trying to swim out and see if I can, I can help in any way. And they're, they're both on boards for some reason. I have no idea why I just grabbed flippers and no board, but I'm swimming. And I, I remember going fuck, I can't see. I can't see anything. I'm like in the water. I, I don't know where the shark is or where the positioning is, but I, I remember seeing the guys getting really close to Kyle. And I remember just like looking at the at Kyle, the, the dude that had been attacked, going, fuck, man, just swim. Like, you know, what are you doing? Like, what's going on? Because I was looking at him and it looked like he was trying to like climb a ladder. You know, when you see those really corny movies and somebody's drowning and you're like come on man you know, i know you know how to swim you know you're surfing it was kind of like that and so i see this dude just going under and splashing and then the splashing kind of subsided a little bit when the when the two dudes got to him and they grabbed an arm each and they they started kind of paddling in and i remember making eye contact with one of them and they and i, I was kind of going underwater and i remember going underwater and opening my eyes to see if i could see the shark or anything. And this is how clear it was. And and everyone says like, you know, sharks don't come out on clear days. Fucking bullshit. So I remember going underwater and just seeing, obviously not in clarity because I'm just opening my eyes, but just big shadow, a big shadow kind of circling around, around vaguely where in the direction of, of where the guys are with Kyle. And I kind of came, came up and, and went down again a few more times and went, fucking, you know, what do I do? And the dudes looked at me and they just kind of pointed at the beach and they're just like, fucking go in, man, go in, go in. And I was like, all right, sweet. Turn around. And I remember just putting my head down and, and swimming properly to the beach and kicking off these fins and, and Rick's there. He's going, fuck, man, fuck. And we were all just like freaking out. We had no idea what we're doing. And, you know, as you can tell the story, you know, it, it, a lot of times passed, like a lot of things have, has happened since that, that first incident when I thought it was a fight, right? And so... As I get to the shore, I throw the flippers up. I turn around. I look at Rick. Rick's like, "Fuck, man!" I, I don't think we even said anything. We just looked at each other, and the guys are now closer to the sto- to the shore. And 
Kyle's back is to the water. He's, he's facing up. I'm like, that's a good sign. That's, that's fucking really good. You know, heads up, he's not face down and they've got an arm each and they're paddling in as hard as they can and get to the shore. And I remember like running down to help to, you know, in my head and, and, and I'm sure in Rick's head, I can't speak for him, but I was running down there going, cool, we'll help carry this dude up. You know, I had my first aid and I, I was, I'd worked as a lifeguard funnily enough when I was, I was younger. So I kind of had, I knew, all right, sweet, this is what you got to do. And, um, we get down to, to the shoreline to, to help these guys carry up Kyle and quickly fucking realize that not all of Kyle's made it to the beach. So there was nothing from his waist down. So it was just all open, but in such a fucking weird way that this is something that you never see, but there was no blood left. It was completely white and the expression on his face, so I, I could never erase and his eyes were open and, um, you know, he'd just been fighting for, with everything that he had. Right. And yeah, I remember running down to the shoreline and, and quickly realizing when we tried to pull him up that there's only half of him left and all of a sudden the bodily reactions just take over. All of us just threw up like everybody. And so then we've got four dudes throwing up, everyone fucking crying, everyone not knowing what the fuck to do, everyone freaking, um, a torso tumbling around and we just had to just grab him and, and lift him up the beach. I remember um, I ran in, I can't remember if it was me or Rick, but we grabbed, I know it was Rick's towel um, to cover up the body because straight away we thought, fuck, no one, like you can't can't see this. We've already seen this, but if we can protect anyone else from seeing this, it's 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 definitely a, a plus. You don't want to see this shit. So he lifted his body into, you know, on the beach, how the, the tide comes up and sets different, um, like mounds. So when the, when the surf comes up and it pushes sand around, you have all those little mounds along the beach when it's not a perfectly flat beach. So we put the body on, on the far side on these mounds. And then, um, the two dudes were kind of stumbled away in distress and we're all dealing with it in our own ways. And this is when Rick and I kind of just looked at each other and went, fuck, we go cover him up um, and close his eyes because his eyes were still open. And I remember kind of grabbing the town and, and Ricky was kind of shutting his eyelids and kind of just looked at me and went, fuck man, he's, he's hard already. And so we shut the eyelids and then, put the towel over him and it was so weird seeing a body un under a towel missing half the body you know it's it's something that really really puts in perspective of how fragile everything is and how much a part of the ecosystem we really are we like to think we're not but we're just smart monkeys running around right um and then, you know, a few little things like the wind blew the towel off, you know, so I quickly, you know, covered it up. And by this time we'd, we'd covered it up and we're kind of sitting there kind of near the body, just looking at each other, speechless, just not knowing what to do or say or and, and not needing to, to say or do anything because we, we all just knew, fuck, you know, that's it. Now, by this time, Nick and Jake would run up the beach to get people out and try to get help had got help and they'd called the cops and, and the ambulance or I'm not sure, maybe we should get them on one day to, to chat about their side of the story, but they come back up and I'm just like, no, nah, dudes, don't, 
don't fucking look, trust me. And, and no one wanted to look. So we, we just fucking hung out there and we hung out with the body for, I think it was about an hour before anyone came. And I remember it was, we, we'd had time to, I guess, digest what had just happened. And you know, we were just fucking in, really destroyed, obviously, and just go, holy shit, we're so fucking lucky. Like, oh my God. And it was just this crazy, crazy feeling. But I never forget the fucking paramedics running up the beach, like mad heroes going, we're here. And, and hang on, they, they are heroes. They, they're fucking amazing. But they, they rocked up and I, I remember going, go, 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 slow down. And they kind of pushed me aside and they're like, kind of fuck off. You know, we're, we're here to help, which of course they've just got the call for like one of the craziest things that ever happened. All they want to do is help. All I wanted to do was tell them, hey, hey, dude, he, he's dead, man. Like just be careful what you're going to see is pretty fucked up. I know you've seen some shit, but just letting you know. And they kind of just blew right past me and fair enough, like they're doing their job. And they blew right past me and, and I remember them walking over to the body, but this time I'm like 20, 30 meters away just with, with the with the, with the the dudes just hanging. And then I remember looking over and they're all throwing up too because it was just so horrific. Um, and I, I, they actually came up to me afterwards on this same day in the car park and, and apologized and said, oh, fuck, you know, so sorry. I understand now you were just trying to warn us, uh, which was really nice of them. They didn't, they didn't have to do that at all and I didn't expect it. But just to kind of paint the picture, these people deal with death and car crashes and heavy things every single day. But even even this was super, super heavy. So what I took from this story is that life is so fucking fragile. Like at any time, all of this shit can be pulled away from you and nothing really matters except for the relationships you have with people, making sure that you say what you think and you consider yourself and, and others as just moving parts on this this weird blue ball spinning around this you know emptiness and not to take anything that seriously like all the stress of stores and businesses and all the shit that I didn't know how to do immediately disappeared and it didn't disappear to the effect of I have no cares or worries anymore. Like, come on, man, I still got worries, but they just didn't matter as much. I needed to make sure from that point onwards that I, I lived not only for myself, but I lived for Kyle. Like he was there doing what he loved. He just wanted one more wave. And anyone who surfs knows that feeling of, oh, I'll just get one more, I'll get one more good run and go in because we just love it so much. And you're there for the feeling. And I guess he paid the ultimate price, but the crazy thing that I just, I often stop and think about is that if I didn't drop in on Jake being a smart ass and a bit of a dick and Nick or Rick were maybe just a couple seconds quicker or, you know, a minute earlier getting into the lineup, potentially that would have been any one of us four. And so out of five people in the water, man, we're fucking, we're really lucky. Like this is insane. And, um, yeah, I, I believe everything kind of happens for a reason, but we, we don't really know the reasons yet, you know, so maybe that will, we'll get clarity and I guess some sort of solace later, but from now until I find out, you know, the bigger questions, it doesn't really matter. Cause all, all I need to do is love life, enjoy, enjoy what you're doing, spend time with friends and family and explore ideas and, and just remember that 
it's it's okay. Like you don't have to know, but you you kind of have to have fun while you're doing it. And if you're not having fun, then what's the point? Like just quit. It's really, really easily. And so that was my newly found mindset that I wish I could have found out an, an easier and a different way. And I, I often think about, is there a way to, to teach other people this mindset without having to go through hell essentially to, to have this immense sense of clarity. And I often refer this to, to others as my sense of hyper clarity. And sometimes you're so invested into what you're doing and where it's going and what you don't know, it becomes really blurry because you don't understand the purpose or the direction or why you're doing it. And my sense of hyper clarity comes from realizing that all of this and all of your worries and all of your joys can be pulled away in a second. So if you're not enjoying it and if you're not doing it for the right reasons um, and enjoying the grind and the process along the way, then just don't do it. Just do something else. It's life is too short. You can just do something else. It's not that hard or that scary. So since that, I've um, really dedicated my life to having fun. If, if something's not too, if something gets too hard and scary, I'm, I'm the first to say, you know what, this isn't for me. That's totally cool. You guys go for it. That's it. So zoom back in time. I know I'm being a bit Tarantino like in this story, jumping back and forth along the timeline. So I'm hoping you're keeping up with it. But from that incident in the, in the shark attack in 2011 to 2016, I doubled down on business. I went, if I'm going to do all this, fucking do it properly. If I go broke, who cares? It doesn't matter. At least I'm not dead. Let's just, let's just do it. Let's try to make a difference. Let's try to make this happen. Um, not knowing how to, but understanding that I'm at least going to give it a crack and it's okay to fuck up and it's okay to, to give it a shot and it, for it not to go anywhere and to be wrong. It's, it's totally fine. It's, it's fine as long as it aligns to your vision, your purpose and your goal. Um, and I knew that I just wanted to create great experiences and I, I wanted to really give the business stuff a crack and, and really see what I could do there. And along the journey, I realized that a lot of these things weren't for me. Geographically, I, I always felt like I wanted to move and explore, but I had this massive, um, I guess, anchor, which was a few anchors, which was a few businesses, right? So slowly, slowly, I started building the businesses up into a point where they were good enough to sell. But, you know, that took years. It took time to build up and dedicate and make sure cash flow was right and get all the ducks in a row. And eventually, um, because of some random turn of events, I was able to sell all of the businesses that I had there. Um, some for nothing, some was, was okay to kind of cover some costs and, and set me up for a little bit for, for my next chapter. Um, and the next chapter really all started out of a chance meeting with a guy called Gus Belbonton, who was going through a similar time in his life. And he's actually going to be one of our guests on Create and Destroy in the coming weeks uh, to, to kind of tell his side of the story on, on where he's come from. But in dot, in dot form, Gus, Gus and I met both speaking at an innovation and entrepreneurship conference in Bunbury in that tiny town. Um, and being a local, I guess, business person, I uh, was invited to, to have a chat there with a good friend, Andrew Fraser, who's an amazing, amazing illustrator and 
arts manager who's responsible for rediscover Bunbury and rediscover the brand um, that is dedicated to injecting art and life into local communities all around Western Australia and abroad. Uh, he's got some books out and stuff like that. You should definitely look him up, Andrew Fraser. Uh, so we spoke at this conference that Gus also spoke at. Gus was started as a designer in at Lonely Planet, everybody's favorite travel brand, um, I guess, until the internet started. Sorry, Gus. Um, no, nah, it's still a sick brand. Um, so we met, he'd recently, well, over 15 years, went from a designer there drawing maps all the way through to running the joint. So running a massive international brand that is one of the most recognized brands around the world. And so as a designer, I was, you know, I guess kind of starstruck yet really inquisitive and wanting to learn, fuck man, like how do you, how do you operate on that scale? How do you, I'm just playing in this little town. How do you manage globally a massive brand dedicated to making sure people have the best time when they're traveling and, and how they're experiencing things? And so I really wanted to meet him and, and have chats about that. And, and luckily enough, surfing, funnily, funnily enough, surfing was the thing that kind of brought us together and we had a chat about and we shared some stories and, and one of his was he just left the organization Lonely Planet to, to head out on his, on his own and, and figure out what his next chapter was because he wanted to find purpose and direction in his own life. And so we kept comms up for, I guess the coming few months we'd met briefly for probably in total three hours by the time, you know, you go to a conference and then a little speakers breakfast or dinner. I can't remember which. And, um, yeah, we just kept messaging and, and I guess we we're both interested in learning from one another. He was living in Melbourne. Uh, I was, I was living in Bunbury looking to kind of exit and sell and, and maybe just buy a one-way ticket somewhere. I was thinking New York at the time, but, uh, I was obviously easily influenced. Uh, and so long story short, well, long story longer, Hey, uh, Gus and I decided to, let's see how we can play together. Let's see where this goes and he was kind enough to invite me over to Melbourne a bunch of times. I stayed in his caravan in his uh, driveway. Um, his family and his epic kids and, and wife really took me under their wing and said, yeah, look, stay here. Let's figure out what's going on. Um, and we started working with Victoria University around entrepreneurial mindset and what entrepreneurship and business looks like not only for their students but for the organization as a business and that was the first project that we worked on that turned into what is now called Rochambeau Studios which works globally with a whole bunch of organizations from really big ones to small startups from you know long-term engagements which we get to really deep dive some of these issues that huge companies are facing um, with that hyper clarity that I unfortunately got from a really shitty situation and Gus got the same thing from years and years of the grind in corporate space. Um, our team, Thomas and, and Hannah, who are directors as well as of the company, we're all there equally together in the trenches, kind of fighting the good fight. We all have a similar story of wanting to find purpose and direction for ourselves and, and for the people that we work with. And, and we, we just want to see where it goes. And so because of all of the above, that's why create, create and destroy was created. So 
before you all DM me and say, hey, fuck, create and destroy, where's that from? It's tattooed on my left arm above my rich, my, my rich watch, <laughs> above my wrist watch on my left arm. It says create and destroy. And that's a, a little nod and a little homage, homage to Thrasher magazine and their tagline, skate and destroy. Uh, I love everything that skateboarding stands for. I love skateboarding. I love watching it. I must confess I'm not very good, but um, the freedom, freedom and expression of skateboarding, um, what it's done for culture, what it's done for youth that are considered outliers um, is immense. And so Create and Destroy is my version of Skate and Destroy, which for me means you can create something, you can see how it goes, and you can just destroy it just as quick if, if it doesn't fit. There's no point hanging out there. And so if that means the same for you, that's great. If you have your own meaning for it, hey, let me know. That's, uh, that's awesome. But I want everyone to go out there and create and destroy. And this, this little show is going to invite some of the, the most creative people that I know, that you know, hopefully when you DM me and, and link me in with, with people that I should talk to. And we're going to sh- learn and share from one another all the things not to do. <laughs> all the you know famous fuck-ups that we've had um i want to get into the heads and minds and, and thoughts of of a whole range of people so that collectively we can learn we can um try to gain that hyper clarity from the learnings of one another um but understanding really really clearly that we all have our own way and our own direction and fights to fight but this little show is is going to be made so you can chuck it in your headphones and you can go for a run around the trails like I do when I listen to a whole bunch of podcasts that I love um, or on a long flight or a drive or, you know, I don't know, you tell me when you do it, maybe doing push-ups at the gym or, I don't know, cooking dinner. But I'm going to be your friend in your ears. I'm going to challenge what you think um, and I'm going to ask these people all the heavy questions hopefully that they're willing to share with, with me and with you guys, the, uh, I'm going to call you the destroyers. So that's the end of episode one of create and destroy. I am Jordan Gian. Um, I'm pumped. I'm excited. Let's see where this goes. Um, feel free to share this. Let me know what your thoughts are. Even though, like I said, this is, feels like a one-sided conversation because I'm sitting here by myself looking around my lounge room. Um, I, I want this to be a, a kitchen table conversation that digitally you can tune in and, and uh, hit me up on, on Instagram or email or, or whatever medium you suit. I'm sure you can find me through my website or Instagram and uh, ask me questions that, that you want answers to or clarification. Um, I'm also going to be posting uh, what, guests I've got coming in so if if you've always wanted to ask these people questions and and see what their thoughts are and you haven't had the opportunity uh, let me be your your microphone and your speakerphone Um, so hit me up with questions with with guests that are upcoming and um, we're learning so there's going to be a whole bunch of things going along the way so that's that this is create and destroy from Rochambeau Studios I am your trusty sidekick (laughs) Jordy Jan, um, 
Thanks for listening, gang. Go get it. Go destroy some shit. And I'll talk to you soon. Yeah.